Good evening, America. Good morning, Australia. And welcome back to Radio Tony and our special show called Up in the Air with Robert Fulton. Now, just a quick reminder, if you're listening live on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube or Twitch, we have the gorgeous Payo in the Philippines ready to answer your questions and send you links to anything that you would like to know about our show today. If you miss those links or you're listening whilst driving a car, jump onto RadioTony.com and look under our guests and you'll find links to the gorgeous Robert Fulton, his wonderful book and his email. So don't forget to jump on and grab a copy of Robert's book, Up in the Air. But before I introduce you to our guest today, let's tell you a little bit about him. This is the second in our series of shows. Um, And our guest is an inspirational reinvention specialist, an author and a pilot. Robert Fulton was just three months shy of retirement and having invested in his employer's retirement plan, they pulled his program and laid everyone off. Robert was forced to reinvent himself for the first time in his life and in his 50-year career, he was grounded. Robert had to figure out what it was to overcome PTSD, deep depression, and what on earth he would do in his late 60s, having lost all of his retirement. Out of this time, a book was born, Up in the Air, A Pilot's Journey, his aviation memoir spending, spanning rather 50 years. Robert has also become an award-winning speaker with Toastmasters, and he now speaks on overcoming obstacles, reinvention, retirement, and leadership in his glorious 60s. Now, just a bit about the book, Up in the Air. With more than uh, 20,000 flying hours, Robert Fulton takes you up in the air in a series of 10 chapters that detail the stories produced by a wide variety of fixed-wing and helicopter missions that on occasion rise to the level of breathtaking terror as well as the luxury of immense relief. In a career spanning 50 years, Robert dives into the riddles of fate in the air, into life's struggle to survive no matter what, and finding a way, risking life and limb to achieve a goal and taking calculated risk to overcome an obstacle that blocks your progress. Lessons are applicable to life and living, and they're paralleled by the author in the lessons uh, he learnt whilst flying um, and testing fate's cruelest outcomes. So up in the air, a pilot's journey will have you paying attention to find out how the story ended and what is next, but it will also give you the feelings of the author as he steers in hopeful directions for favourable outcomes for passengers and fellow pilots who deserve success and to be shielded from fate at its worst. Good evening, Robert, and welcome back to Radio Tony. We're so delighted to have you with us again this week. Now, last week we spoke extensively about your life and career and that terrible time in your life when you were laid off just as you were coming into your glorious retirement. Um, I wanted to talk specifically about this amazing book, which I've re-listened to over the weekend via Audible. So for those listening, Up in the Air is available in paperback. It's also available in Listening Glory, narrated by Robert himself on Audible, and it's also available on ebook for all of those Kindle or other readers. Now, Robert, it's a lovely description the first time you went up 
in an aircraft as a child. Can you recount this experience for the audience? It's a wonderful memory for you, isn't it? Yes, it's vivid, especially the green airplane. It was a a bright green with yellow stripes. And a good friend of my mother's, uh, a couple, uh, he had flown in Korea as a Navy pilot off of a carrier. Great guy. Um, I think I was around seven or eight. Um, He had a little airplane, a Piper. It had a tailwheel and backseat. He invited oh. my mom and I to come on a Saturday morning and he would take us up in the airplane. And I was thrilled and uh, I climbed in the back seat. I'm not, maybe they didn't want to let me close to the, uh, the controls. I'm not sure. But uh, <laughs> I remember the takeoff. I remember looking down and being amazed. And I had flown in, in airplanes on occasion to see my father and that kind of thing, but nothing yeah. that personal. And um Yes, it, it stayed in my brain. I never wanted to do anything but fly after that experience. And it was just a little plane, wasn't it, Robin? Because there was Robert, there was only a couple of um, seats, so only three seats. Is that correct? Of uh, four seats. There was a small back seat, and it was what you'd call a four-place airplane. It was covered with, you know, canvas. You know, the the cl- yes. cloth and uh, yes. the do- how they used to dope it in the old days. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Later in the book, I have a two-place airplane. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful memory aptly described in your book, Up in the Air. Um, One of the phrases that I liked from the first chapter of Up in the Air was the chapter called 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Now, I don't want to give away the story, but there was a phrase that caught my attention and I loved it. And it was called Bull Riding in the Snow. Can you tell the audience what that wonderful uh, phrase refers to, Robert? I'll try to do it. It's uh, towards the end of the story, yeah. and yes, it was a st- the first chapter is about the first job that I had out of the when I got out of the army, and it was six hundred yeah. miles above the Arctic Circle. Uh, I'd been in Alabama, and I'd just come back from Southeast Asia, so six hundred above yeah. miles above the Arctic. The Arctic Circle was fairly like going to another planet. Uh, I had taken an an aircraft out to recover some equipment. We went down in a bad whiteout. By down, I don't mean crash, but we landed. And if anyone's ever been in a whiteout, whether it's in the fog or in the snow, there's no sense of direction up, down, or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Through a series of uh, struggles and difficult terror-raising uh, options, yes. we started to move yes. in the helicopter. And it, the re- it was like a Hansel and Gretel story. The wind began yeah. to uh, hit the ridges in a way that you could see the little black pebbles that were along the ridge, and they were frozen. So it wasn't like they were going to roll off. And the sun was kind of in that direction. So we finally yes. had some contrast where I could pick the helicopter up and follow those black stones up along the ridge. And then the the, the uh, whiteout would come back, totally immersing us, and I would have to drop the helicopter onto the ground. We were only hovering at three or four feet. And we prayed that it oh. was on a slope so we would roll down the hill, that yeah. it was flat, and sometimes it would rock and so on. And I was, I had a gentleman with me who was the technician. I was trying to make him feel a little better, and I used that phrase <laughs> that it was like bull riding, in the snow. Yes. Yeah. 
So. I thought it was a wonderful description. The other thing I note from that chapter is uh, the type of clothing you took from Alabama to the Arctic Circle as a young man what were you thinking? <laughs> I was obviously ignorant. Uh, to me, I grew up in the North Pacific Northwest, and so a coat was a coat. Never thought about it yeah. past that. Luckily, they sent me up there in the summer. Although later, um, I don't. I think I went uh, up without into like the winter. Yes. Um, in the summer, all I had was my army field jacket. And I felt like that was sufficient. <laughs> in the summer, it was marginal. And in the conditions we found ourselves in with a 50-mile-an-hour wind, it was worth nothing. Um, later, yeah. when I went in to, uh, was sent up in the Arctic in the middle of the winter, like December, and it was dark all the time, I still had that jacket. And, of course, I would have died within five minutes. So somebody, one of the other pilots loaned me a World War I trench jacket, which if you ever saw any pictures of World War One, which it was ancient then too. This I wasn't yeah. in World War One, and the the uh, coat went down to your ankles. So when I got in the helicopter, the stick I, there was no way. So I had to take a knife and cut a big square so that I could hold the stick of the helicopter and still have this coat on. And that saved me till I got a a, a re, you know a, a down jacket like a, a normal person would think of. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and it was 60 That's, below zero. Yeah. So. Um, later on, I'm going to ask you about some of those more challenging um, situations. But that struck me as, oh, my goodness, I just I can't imagine how cold it would have been for you, number one, and then number two, being that cold and trying to fly um, a helicopter. Um, luckily, yeah. you were a young, bulletproof young gentleman. Otherwise, I'm sure there would have been worse outcomes. Um, one of the next chapters I felt that was most interesting to talk to our audiences about was the description of the 400 orange helicopters converging from all points of the universe on Parker County Courthouse, like bees swarming to a beehive. What was this describing? And can you take our listeners back to that time and place? I was in flight school, Army, a U.S. Army flight school in Texas, and it was in yeah. kind of rural Texas. It was um, west of, of Dallas-Fort Worth area. The helicopters, they were, they were training. There would be four to 500 helicopters in the sky at any one time on any day, given day, and often at night. Um, to sort these helicopters out, there was no way you could talk to them individually by radio. So we had a system, yeah. and there was an unusual-looking uh, county courthouse in this one small town of Weatherford, and it stuck up. Yeah. You could see it. It was unusual-looking. Uh, the idea was to converge from wherever you were, north, south, east, or west, actually fly over the top of the, top of the uh, courthouse and join yeah. a line that was, pro- was pretty close to 25 miles long that ended were the at the uh, flight school where you landed on a on a large ramp, so yeah, nobody's controlling you. And it, the bee uh, it, similarity to the beehive thing is exactly right. If yeah. you can imagine, the helicopters are painted right. In the daytime, they were at least all orange. At night, it was all lights, and it was a little <laughs> more challenging. And it was like a ship at sea because 
the, uh, the yeah. lights would suddenly disappear behind another helicopter or whatever, and then they would reappear. So the challenge was is to work your way in. It wasn't like you had a number. It wasn't like you, the senior people went or the most experienced people. No. All these orange helicopters were out training, and they flew off of the airfield and went in all their different directions. And we had other airfields outlying, and we had farmers' fields with tires in them where you would land and so on. So we literally came from every point of the compass back to that little courthouse in Weatherford, Texas. So you would take your chances. The thing was, is most of us only had 10 or 15 hours of flight time. And sometimes we had an instructor with us, but often the guy with you only had that much time too. So you would split, you would go out for an hour, you'd fly for 30 minutes, he'd fly for 30 minutes, that kind of thing. So (laughs) there's two of you, your total flight time probably isn't 25 hours or 20 hours. And you'd figure out how to join this. And then once you joined it, of course, everybody's going fast and slow and fast and slow. It's not like an airplane where everybody set their power yeah. in a certain setting. Uh, it's in a helicopter, everything varies because you have four controls that you're trying to coordinate. So yes, you, you would get behind the helicopter, and if you got slow, you'd have to get slow. The guy behind you would have to get slow. He would go fast. You would try to catch up with him. And every once in a while, a helicopter would go down out of gas, engine trouble, some of them crashed, unfortunately, but you weren't allowed to break that line and go down and all hell would break loose. You just closed up the line and kept going. And somebody came and took care of whatever was happening below you. You didn't even dare look down. You just watched the guy in front of you because it would only take a um, second for you to eat up his tail yeah. rotor and both of you go down together. And this happened day yeah. after day for several years while they were trying to get 600 pilots trained every month they would train you for nine months but every month they would yeah. graduate 600 pilots so that meant four or five hundred helicopters in the air yeah. yeah and that was um intense training to send you off to vietnam wasn't it right. robert yes that's where you were headed vietnam i after i have to tell the audience that after listening to um robert in that chapter i even talking to Robert this morning, I have this wonderful crystal clear. And I've never been to uh, Texas, uh, indeed not been anywhere near Parker County Courthouse, but I have an image in my head because of the way that Robert wrote that I can see those helicopters, I can see that line, I can see them going up and down, and it's that's... Uh, typical of the writing that Robert uses in this book it leaves you with a very clear image of exactly what Robert was seeing feeling and experiencing in that that time and place and it leaves you with a clear connection to Rob what Robert went through um one of the next chapters that I'd like to talk about um from up in the air focuses on the fate uh, on fate in general and the analogy you use to decide fate and that discussion about the fortune cookies, another one of my favourite chapters. So, Robert, I thought we'd talk about fate. Um, how much does the concept of fate enter your mind as a young man flying combat missions in Vietnam in, in helicopters? Well, fate's, <laughs> fate's always, you can feel it on your shoulder almost because there are so many variables. Yes. There are so many challenges. Yes. 
and there's spark plugs going off and gas coming in and jet engines going, but there's also weather and the guy beside you and where the terrain is and the mountains. And I'm not sure how fate's put together. When I was young, my parents had been in the Royal Canadian Air Force, and I used to leaf through the magazines that they had during the war. And there was a story of gremlins in there. And the gremlins, maybe people now don't know of that, but the gremlins were blamed for success and failure and always, you know, messing with the airplane kind of thing. So they that was kind of their brand of of just talking about fate, an unknown creature crawling through the airplane Uh, doing a bad thing. So um, I just found it to be in my in my book, I try to use it like a fortune cookie. And there's you have the cookie. And every time you go in the air, you put two or three or four of these in a a, um, imaginary bag and carry them with you. They may get opened or they may not get opened. When they're open, there's a message. And that's what fate's going to hand you at the moment. A bad, you know, a bad engine, bad fuel, the weather's closing in. And it's written by a hand that you have no idea who wrote it. Often it's amazing how controlled it is. Yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The, the, the concept of fate when you're flying, um, you, can, you have control over a whole range of things, but fate is not something that you can control, is it, Robert? No. It's something you're faced with suddenly and uh, often suddenly. And sometimes you're in the hands of fate when you leave the ground. Yes. You just haven't caught up with it yet. You don't know what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, it's nothing to be a – it's not that you fear it, but it you know that it's a factor oh. and you have to be flexible. There's no – you can't take a book out and get the exact answer. Yes. And uh, yeah. I found that especially – Certainly in airplanes and, and all the different stories, but certainly in helicopters where anything can happen at any time. And in an airplane, if you lose both engines, you can glide and you can think for a while. Yes. In a helicopter, yes. if things go really bad, all of a sudden you're in a massive, rotating, noisy, uh, disconcerting yes. mess of metal and noise. And you can't take a book and say, well, this is what I should do in this circumstance. So, yeah. Yeah. The concept of fate play on your mind whilst you're in Vietnam, Robert? Uh, I would say yes, in that sometimes things happen to others that you wondered why it didn't happen to you or why they were the ones that it came out against. Uh, Sometimes you were in worse circumstances, but were able to survive it. So the whole thing started to be a puzzle about who was going to survive yeah. and who wasn't. Uh, I didn't meet anybody that was a coward. They they took it. You know, that was something as soon as the skids left, the, as soon as you hit the start button, you accepted that. Yeah. And you may be the most worthy and the best in the group, but you may suffer the worst in terms of fate because you flew over a yeah. 37 caliber, um, 37 millimeter uh, anti-aircraft gun instead of some guys yeah. with rifles. And, there, there was no, no chance. way of you knowing that. Yeah. 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 Robert, um, I'd like to talk a little bit further about Vietnam because it left such lifelong impacts on you and because a lot of those impacts you weren't able to um, deal with until later in your life. Um, are, you, are you happy to talk about that a little bit today, Robert? 
sure. Within, uh, <laughs> I, I, yes. Yes. yes, within reason, I, I can. Not yes. reason, but within Correct. certain terms, sure. Yeah. So you were, when they sent you to Vietnam, you were all predominantly young men without very much life experience. And so what were some of the things that you did to get yourself through those terrible times in Vietnam? What were some of the things that you had to fall back on that helped you get up and jump in that helicopter day after day after day? Well, uh, that's a good question. I was I was 21 when I went over and I turned 22 two months yeah. later and I was considered a grandfather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the average age was 19 and there were officers that were older than I was, but in general, the, the helicopter pilot in Vietnam uh, was 20, 19 or 20 years old. And I had, I, so young. I was young and I was married with two children at home, which was very unusual. Um, So I had responsibilities. I knew I had to do my job. I couldn't be reckless uh, in, in, you know, (laughs) in, in any way, whether, you know, whatever it was, uh, the war or morality, whatever I was trying to, you know, and I think that I had a, a standard because of that. Uh, and also the way yeah. I was raised, and I think all these boys were good boys. I, I wouldn't want to say no because they were there and they yeah. were trying to do they, what they were expected to do. So they were good people that way. But I had no tools to deal with the extremes because in that yeah. situation, especially when they're young, everybody says yes to almost everything you can imagine. But in the battles, they're brave and, you know, that no one, everyone does their job. But in the, in between times, there's every advice you yeah. can imagine, of course, in war. And so all those things were things I didn't even, some, a lot of them I didn't even know existed. I was very naive. Yes. So, yeah. 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 I can imagine that that it was a very tough time to be um, a young man uh, at, in a war, war zone. Um, I'm wondering if, the fact that you actually were married and had two kids was a little bit of a protection for you in some of those circumstances because you talk about um, you then have your thinking of someone else other than just you in that circumstance and and knowing that you've got a wife and kids at home. um, Did you feel that it, it made you seem a little bit wiser and older than some of the other young pilots? Um, I think that's a good analysis. Um, yeah. Uh, in unfortunate circumstances, I had to go to work when I was 17, re- providing for my mother yeah. and sister before that experience yeah. of being married. So I had a, a number of those kinds of experiences in my life. And so um, I would say, yes, the responsibility, the, you know, the thinking of others, thinking of my two children. Um, yeah. 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 Those that was very helpful in giving me what some. About, Go ahead. Yeah. What about Robert? When you came home from that war zone, was it immediately? I need to find another job to support my family. Did you have downtime, or you just came home and immediately a 
went about life once again? Well, no, it wasn't so immediate. When I came home, I was still in the army. They had a program where they would, uh, your GI Bill would pay for airplane training, and then you could transition to an airplane pilot in the army. So I was home for six months uh, in that program. So I wasn't actually reporting for duty every day. I was still in the army, but I could live like a civilian. And that was a helpful, uh, yeah. And any relationship is challenged by a year's separation and all the things. And of course, you're young. Um, I think my wife at the time was very bewildered about it. Um, I would get yes. up in the night and run down the hall and in trying to cope with those wartime um, yeah, memories. Because I would hear a noise or something and then I would and she didn't understand why I was under the bed or was in the bathroom in the tub or yes. something. And that went on for about six months. But anyway, yeah. And then my family that I grew up with and the cousins I grew up with. I think I, I told you last time that no one ever talked to me yeah. after I came home. Yeah. So, but uh, I did go in the army to learn to fly. And so I had my mindset on uh, getting a yeah. civilian job as soon as I could. And when they started to cut back in Vietnam, I, you, they were giving me the opportunity to get out early. And so um, I basically Good. got out early uh, two hour, two years and nine months. And then I, I got in my car and drove to Calgary, Alberta to see if I could get a job. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, one of the other things that I found interesting um, was the chapter called Snakes and, and uh, Rockets. And I just thought it'd be interesting for you to describe for the audience in your story, what do snakes actually refer to? <laughs> well, in Vietnam slang, because we were flying the high-performance uh, gunship called a Cobra, the uh-huh. short term for that was snakes. Uh-huh. So when I say snakes and rockets, I'm talking about cobras and rockets, but were there Correct. snakes You're there? talking about yes. a helicopter. Yes. You're talking about a helicopter short, with guns. And- right. It's called a cobra. So the short yeah. term was snake. They were, we, we were yeah. snake, snake drivers. Yeah. 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 They were fast, weren't they, Robert? Those, those particular helicopters were quite fast and agile. Yes. Mm-hmm. More so than a normal helicopter? Right. The Hueys that were there were like eight feet wide and slow, 100 miles an hour. And uh, they put guns and things on them, but it, it was fairly, yeah. that's awful slow to be a gunship. So they squeezed it together and it was only three feet wide. It was the same engine and a high-speed rotor. Mm-hmm. And you had wings mm-hmm. so you could hang rockets and machine guns on it. And you became the gunship. Ah. So you were escorting the other helicopters uh, in and out. Um doing patrols for um yes uh for um convoys and then of course anytime they were in contact with the enemy day or night 24 7 you were called off the ground you had to be in the air in two minutes in the the unit i was in awfully fast yeah It, it seems unimaginable that you could get from where you were into a helicopter and up getting up in the air in two minutes like that's incredibly yeah. fast for my <laughs> my perspective exactly i'm not sure i could get down the stairs and get to the car in two minutes <laughs> i know well you learned you know kind of how to do it. you you got out there fast of course you ran and yes. the uh door would be opened by the mechanic so you you would reach in uh, and hit switches while you were still climbing in so the rotor was starting to turn while you were still getting in your seat oh, and putting on wow. your bike and you were doing the switches and stuff so that 
as soon as your seatbelt was fastened, you'd put the power up all the way and get the heck out of there. Yeah. Wow, that's the mad set of skills there, Robert. <laughs> um, throughout the book, there's lots of um, discussion about uh, different elements of difficult flying. So we, you talk a bit about night flying, you talk about snow flying. Um, they both sound really challenging. What are the main implications for, um, let's go with helicopters. So the main implications for helicopters um, flying at night in the snow. So what sort of things are you looking for? What danger points are out there when you're flying at night in snow? <laughs> well, at night in snow is a double whammy. That's really murder. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the thing with the helicopter and 90% of their flight time generally is in contact with the ground. You know, you may only be able to yeah. see 100 feet, but in a helicopter, if you're hovering over a tree, and you can only see the next yeah. tree. You can fly to the next tree and the next tree. That's You can do that in a helicopter. So yeah. uh, where you might, uh, and, and plus it's remote. So yeah. it's not like if now when you were flying a hospital ship and you were in Philadelphia, you could pull up in the clouds, you know, call, call ATC, make an approach into a runway, that kind of thing. But generally, yeah. uh, helicopter pilots didn't trust that avenue. It's different now and there's autopilots and a lot of things. <laughs> But you just keep trying to stay in contact with the ground. And yeah, uh, yeah. there was a long mission there it's just, uh, in uh, 10 where the two children I picked up from an automobile accident yes. was at night. And uh, it was a struggle. And I was basically going from farm, uh, farm, farm, by farm light, I mean a light in the in a, yes, on a, yes. on a front of a barn or something like that, uh, from light to light to light, trying to move towards Philadelphia, which is a huge city, but so dark you couldn't even see yes. the um, if you introduce snow, you got visibility issues, uh, often uh, icing, and helicopters yes, uh, yes. are not at the, generally equipped to go into icing. And what happens is yeah. the helicopter gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and the blades get iced up mm-hmm. and they twist. So some of the ice comes off, but you start losing control. So, and then you want to land, oh. but sometimes there isn't a place to land. And so, those are the challenges yeah. and you're trying to not get to the final point where you have no options. You're trying to keep an option. Yeah. 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 Robert, before the show, we talked about some of the chapters and I know that you've got um, a chapter that you'd like to read for the audience today. I'm going to let you pick that one and introduce it to the audience. So um, listeners, this is a chapter from Robert's book that he's going to read for you right now. One of the, his favorite chapters in the book. Um, I was going to go to chapter 10, and again, it's kind of at the yes. end, end of the chapter, um, and it's about, there's several missions in there, but this story, uh, we had gone up, nobody else, everybody else had turned down the flight, and uh, I, having just come from Vietnam, I had that disease where, tell me where it is, and I will go try to do it. You know? It didn't occur to you that you couldn't do it, so I was the guy that yeah. went, and uh, there was yeah. fog and rain and low clouds. And it was very late in the afternoon, and there were two children. One was yep. a year, and one was about two and a half. They'd been in separate yeah. automobile accidents. Um, the one thing in EMS, and I know you've been a nurse and you understand this, when the word yeah. children comes up, everybody changes. Uh, it's it's, it's not that children feel strongly about saving adults, but when kids come into the mix, it, it just changes everything. Um, it does. So There's an extra urgency 
and there's an extra, there's something extra that goes on in your brain that says the kids go, 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 go. And then you do absolutely everything in your power to keep that child alive. That's what happens from my nursing experience. I'm sure it's no different from anyone else in emergency services. And so this is the chapter talking about that. Right. And it, that's a good way to put it. And uh, the trouble with the pilot is you, you want to try to stay removed and not be pulled into the, the urgency for the yeah. Make, make start making your decisions based on the urgency of saving the patient because your decisions are weather and all these other things. But it doesn't. Yeah. You're not made out. Of, you're not a robot. So yeah. So in this particular no. situation, I had actually been holding the IVs while they help put the get yeah. the children ready for the helicopter. So I got drawn into a place I really shouldn't have been uh, emotionally and so on. So we took off probably yeah. 20 minutes too late in terms of the weather. Uh, it was getting worse. We had to cross a ridge. Uh, I was telling you about flying from light to light, trying to get yes. into Philadelphia. Yes. When we got into Philadelphia, I was basically hovering from street light to street light, not down where you could touch it, but you know, high enough to miss the wires to get to the hospital. And I knew that street because that's the way I drove to the hospital. Yes. So the hospital was yeah. 12 stories high. So when I got to the hospital, it yes. was all fogged in. So I just went to the side of the helicopter or to the hospital where the lights and the patient rooms. And I just made myself into an elevator, got as close to the building as I could and just went up 11 yes. stories straight up. And yes. then I landed on the top and this is where this started. Yeah. Okay. So a, a flurry of activity immediately surrounded us. Helping hands slid out the single stretcher where both kids lay wrapped in a warm blanket, and positioned it onto the hospital gurney. The gurney on its black, rapidly wobbling wheels was then pushed into the waiting elevator. The doors closed against the swirling eddies of mist generated by the turning rotors of the parked helicopter. For me, it, it was over. After two minutes, I closed the throttles, reached for the rotor brake, and pulled weakly on the lever, my strength suddenly draining away. As the rotors slowly came to a halt, I secured the switches, killed the battery, dropped my flight helmet onto the passenger seat before unlatching the pilot door. I placed the foot onto the skib step, hesitating for a moment, before stepping down onto the concrete pad. The air was cool, and the sounds of the city were muffled by the thick fog. I drank in the utter relief of that momentary stillness after what at the time had seemed like hours of intense flying. Water droplets from the saturated air moved gently across my bare skin, evidence that I was at least reunited with Earth, no matter how temporary. I walked around to the clamshell doors that were still open from the medical crew's final rush into the building with their two small patients, trailed by doctors and staff. The crew had held IVs and straightened dangling tubes as they crossed the pad, everyone talking and gesturing at once. Now I was alone. A comforting silence permeated the shadows behind the helicopter where I stood with one hand on the door. 
Before I could think to close and fasten both doors, I did something I had never done after any flight. I cried. My shoulders convulsed with sobs for a full five minutes there in the darkness. I didn't know if my emotions were was from relief at finally reaching the pad from the sheer emotion of safely delivering the children or from the release of suppressed tension into the vapor around me. Perhaps it was from all three. I couldn't really figure it out. I wiped my sleeve across my face to clear away the tears. The drifting fog flew blue blew across the helipad and swirled at the edges of the building. Oh, beautiful, Robert. Thank you. Thank you for reading that for us. I I can um, identify with those feelings. They're a combination of stress and adrenaline and relief and uh, and doing the things that you know that you have to do, that you've been trained to do in that moment. And then when it's all over, in the, in the quietness, those tears are a release of relief and anxiety and, and everything else so easily identifiable by people who work in any sort of emergency situation. Robert, do you know how the kids fared? I know that they survived, and I know yeah. that. Mm-hmm. I don't know the technical desk. It was at the children's hospital. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so I know it was so a successful being... outcome. I know that happened, yeah. Yeah, one of them had gone through the windshield and the other had been, yeah, so that was pretty traumatic for them. But Serious. Yes. Serious mm-hmm. injuries to um, try and cope with. Um, Robert, Up in the Air writes about lots of those dangerous accidents, incidents, dangerous situations that you've had across your um, illustrious career. Can you tell the audience, how those uh, near-death experiences affected you and the way that you fly and the way that you live life? Did they have an impact on how you felt about life in general? I would say absolutely yes. Some of this was kind of composted (laughs) and later in my life... And sometimes even when yeah. I was writing, I realized how challenging and what had changed. Um, flying yeah. kept me humble. I know pilots have a bit of a, uh, a reputation for big egos, but you need a certain amount of ego to take a bunch of rotating parts up into the sky yeah. and, uh, and yeah. fly on any kind of mission. So, But um, uh, not to be cavalier at all, uh, I, I did realize the seriousness of some of these things. But I kind of took it in my stride as my job and that I had to yeah. do this time. But as kind of fate, like we talked about, there were always changing yeah. circumstances. So you may have learned a lesson that you used and was valuable. It was kind of yeah. like a building block. But other changes, you know, would sometimes sweep aside the lessons you'd learned previously. And now you're in an, yeah. <laughs> a more challenging situation even. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I appreciated my life, certainly. Uh, my terror yes. generally comes three or four days afterwards. <laughs> it's not like I feel it at the yeah. time. Yeah. 
I was just going to say for the audience that um, for many of us that have worked in dangerous situations, stressful situations, it's not the immediate aftermath usually. It's down the track when your brain's had time to start to heal. That's when those feelings come up and that's when you have to deal with them. And I know in Robert's case, a lot of those things didn't come up till much later in life, which is a perfectly normal reaction because our brain tries to protect us until a time when it thinks that, okay, now you can think about this and work through it and resolve some of those feelings that you have about a certain situation. Yeah, that's, that's um, a good I'm going to switch gears now. Yeah. I'm sorry? I'm going to switch gears. Now, and up in the air, um, your book is peppered with wonderful insights into the technical components of flight from aircraft of all different descriptions to helicopters. And you're an expert in this field. And I, I remember listening and thinking you um, accomplished the conversation about the technical components of flight with such adept authority. Was it difficult to make the technical information within the book as readable and understandable? So from my perspective, as a woman reading this, it was perfectly readable, fantastically interesting. Did you do this on purpose, Robert? Did you, was it, um, did you want to make it so absolutely readable whereby anyone can understand what's going on in that particular snap? scenario or story that you're talking about yeah. absolutely i i had read stories yeah. in my career and i the ones that i appreciate the most were the ones that were able to you know make it very readable and i wanted the book to be readable and i think i because i have a lot of uh, of of ladies reading the book women reading the book yeah. with good reviews i think they get it for maybe somebody that's more technical in their life there are lots of technical women, but I mean, in general, maybe their husband yeah. drives it, yeah. you know, has it. and um, uh, then they read the first chapter and then they read it all and then they give it to their husband kind of thing. So I had a friend tell me not too long ago, they were at a, a kind of a seminar and there was a helicopter pilot who was going to relate some of his experiences that were quite moving, yeah. but the talk was 50 minutes long and he took 45 minutes explaining how helicopters fly. And so he pretty well uh -huh. lost the audience early on, even though his story was good. Yeah. And I didn't want that to happen. Um, I know that yes. there are technical aspects, even landing on the ship. Uh, yeah. I, I wanted it to be available to everyone. So I try to keep it simple. You had to explain some of the things so people you could do. impact, but Appreciate. I'm very happy to hear that you feel like it was very readable because that was my goal. Absolutely. Um, I, as much as I love all things flight, uh, Robert and I have discussed this before, my love of, of, of helicopters and flying and gliding and paragliding and parachuting and all that, all that, I still found Robert's book up in the air, whilst the, the, the technical components that Robert's added actually add to the whole enjoyment of the story and and the book so it's done in a way that you don't I didn't at any time think that I was reading anything particularly technical it's only when I'm finished and reflecting on on listening to the book that I'm like oh yeah Robert talked about da 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 da, da in terms of helicopters going up or down or whatever they're 
story <laughs> relates to. And I thought, oh, yeah, that was really cool. I really loved the way that that's done, Robert. So congratulations on your ability to combine those technical components and weave them into the story in such a beautiful way. Um, yeah, I know that we've talked about women buying the books for their men, but for any of the men listening, it's a fabulous journey into a whole range of exciting little stories that make up Up in the Air. Um, Robert, do you have a favourite chapter? And I know you, I asked you this before we went to, to air, but do you think that there's a favourite chapter or do all of them bring out the richness of what's been a very wonderful career? Yeah, I, um, thank you. I, I guess it's kind of like a quilt. You like the whole quilt, yeah. but you enjoyed putting the parts together as you went. And then you were very yeah. pleased how it all came together. So I guess that's kind of where I am. Um, there's a yeah. couple of things. One, uh, my daughter, uh, my youngest daughter uh, wrote a preface, which I really appreciate. Yeah. And I, I think female or male, whoever who reads that, hopefully is drawn in uh, to the story further. The the favorite, one thing I, I've heard often is there's a story, we had a little two-place airplane, two seats, and the kids yeah. were all little, and we made, <laughs> we made it into a five-place airplane because I put the two smallest ones next to me, and then there was a little space yeah. for whatever luggage or whatever, and there was we had a little box back there and i put the two older kids yeah. there and the airplane yeah. only had an 85 horsepower engine um but we had a memorable trip to the beach and uh i put them all in there with a cooler and and uh, and everything yeah and uh, we flew this little tiny airplane into a grass strip down on the water and uh um. yeah and at the end of the strip like a t crossing the strip was a motel, yes. a single-story motel with a big motel on it. It, it wasn't occupied yes. at the time, but the grass strip must have been there for that reason. So we landed there, and uh, we went to the beach. It was actually the river there, yes. but it was sandy. And uh, yes. had a great time, got back in. Um, I knew the grass was long, but it didn't occur to me that it was going to be a factor. And I taxied <laughs> the airplane to the other end. At the other end, there were very yes. tall 100-foot uh, trees that I knew I couldn't get over. So I decided to go out yeah. over the hotel. So yeah. I got it back as far as I could, put the brakes on, ran the little 84 five-horsepower engine up, and let go of the brakes. But we didn't surge forward like you normally would. It was kind of sluggish. Not quite like honey, but kind of. But I didn't think anything of it at the time. Uh -huh. We started gathering speed. And then mm -hmm. I realized that the grass had not been mowed, so it was very long, and it was pulling at the wheels, this little airplane. So I looked at the, oh, no. the strip wasn't that long. So I look up and the whole windshield is filled with the motel. And I look at the panel and the airspeed indicator is saying zero. It's just bouncing a little bit. And so I had about three and a half seconds to decide to go through the motel lobby or to fly. And I pulled back. <laughs> And somehow we staggered into the air and our wheels almost rolled off the roof of this motel. And I don't know how we're flying. And the kids, of course, yeah. think we're, they're in a carnival or something. They're not, have no idea. I'm terrified because my whole family. going, yay, dad. <laughs> and the, the, as soon as we get past the motel, there's wire, big high powered wires. We get over those. And finally, I don't think I can hold it anymore. And I push the nose over and it's down to the river. 
and we go away. So and anyway, in that story, and if you've heard it, I describe it. I just feel mm. like um, if it wasn't angels, it was like an angel that yeah. they just took their hand yeah. and cut the airplane because there was no reason for it to fly. And often people, engineers, other pilots say, oh, you, you didn't have your facts straight. No, I had them straight. <laughs> we did all of that with no yeah. airspeed. So anyway, that was a story that yeah. was inspirational, terrifying. And people say, what were you thinking? <laughs> so. Just taking the kids to the beach for a swim. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> priorities got messed up there a little bit. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's one of the stories that I enjoyed. Is people tell me they like that story. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lovely story. Um, listen, Robert, we're drawing to the end of our interview, but I want to just remind um, our listeners that the book Up in the Air by Robert Fulton is available from the website apilotjourney.com. That's singular, apilotjourney.com. For those of you that are listening live on the social media feeds, those links will be popped into the comments for you as we're talking about it. But before I want, uh, before I let Robert go, I want to know, Robert, you have this amazing book. You um, have the ability to speak across the country, and that's something that you want to do in the future. What else does the future hold for Robert Fulton, author, speaker, and pilot? <laughs> well, I, I'm working. I had written an. Uh, a fiction story about three mixed race children in Saigon in the last days of the war and uh, had some very much people very interested in it. So I'm going back uh, now that I've got this book launched, that's my next project uh, that I'm I'm working on. So um, I'm looking forward to publishing that book, hopefully this year sometime. So that would be one thing. And I have several other ideas um, and I hope I can get the same great editor back. So yeah, yeah. Um, so those are the things I don't editing, feel encumbered by my age or how much time I have left or anything else. I'm living every absolutely. day, and it's the best time of my life, actually. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, for those of you listening too, Robert does wonderful uh, speeches about all things flight and aircraft. But other than that, he has a wonderful repertoire around leadership and coping mechanisms. And um, I hope that that part of your new career continues to evolve as well because people um, need to hear these stories and and wisdom from you. And um, I'm so excited to hear that you are progressing in your author journey and we'll be looking forward to your next book as soon as it comes out. Well, now, Robert, um, this is our last show together, but okay. um, I'm actually going to interview Robert again on a, a different program, um, and uh, in a in a little while as well. But Robert, I just wanted to take the opportunity to thank you so much for allowing me to interview you about your book and your experiences. I want to appreciate and acknowledge that you have been very vulnerable in appearing on live radio and talking about some truly tough and challenging situations. Um, I want to wish you and the book and everything that you do from now on every success. It's been a real pleasure and delight to have you live on the air and be able to showcase this wonderful book you, that you've written. And just for our listeners, it's called Up in the Air by Robert Fulton. It's available on Amazon 
and everywhere you can find books available in um, hardback paper, uh, Kindle and audio. And I can vouch for the audio book. It, it's a narrated in Robert's voice and it just draws you in. It's magical, yep. uh, scary and fabulous. Robert <laughs> Fulton, very- thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. It's very kind of you. I appreciate it. Um, That is our lot for this week, my wonderful listeners. Don't forget to jump on and grab a copy of Robert's book, Up in the Air, available on Amazon and everywhere else you find your good books. It would make an outstanding gift for the men in your life and for those women who love flight and are technical uh, and even the not-so-technical women This is a wonderful read from a very wonderful man and I encourage you to jump out and grab a copy today. That's it for this week. Thank you from, I'm your host, Tony Lontis. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Robert Fulton, for being such a wonderful guest on the show. And that's it for now. Thank you, Tony. Bye, Robert. Bye now. Bye for now. There's a big black sky over my town